I just don't understand why it's a drum. <laughs> There's a drum, a drum, parolas to come. <laughs> Hello, noble patrons. Hello, gentles all. And welcome to What You Will. A tedious and brief Shakespeare podcast. I'm Charlotte Aline. And I'm Danielle Cohn. And this week we're talking about All's, All's Well That, that Ends Well. well. <laughs> So, this is a play about a kick-ass female doctor who just doesn't believe in herself enough. It's really true. This is a play about an annoying frat bro who gets tricked about a drum. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> the drum. Um, Alright, so we're gonna kick it off by giving you a brief summary Since of the play. Since we're assuming that unless you're a hardcore nerd, this may be one that you've never actually read before. This is, so I, I have the Harold Bloom Shakespeare, the invention of the human or something book and in it, it this is listed under problem place oh amazing. that's it's like that's it's, uh, it's, genre. it's genre so we're gonna get into all of those problems beginning with a three minute synopsis of the play all's well that ends well starting now Oh, so it, the play opens and everybody's <laughs> sad because the Countess is like, just FYI, my husband's dead and now my son is leaving because he's a big boy, but I'm sad because he's leaving. And Helen is like, I'm also sad because my dad is also dead, but really I'm sad because my childhood friend Bertram is leaving and I'm in love with him. Uh, so Bertram leaves and then the Countess finds out that Helena is totally into Bertram. So she summons Helena to her and is like, are you in love with my son? Gets her to admit it. And then Helena's like, you know what? I'm going to go to France to cure the king of his anal fistula because I'm a fierce lady doctor <laughs> because my father was also a doctor and he told me how to be a fierce lady doctor um, and also mostly because Bertram's there. So Helena arrives in the court of France and she's like, hey y'all, I'm a female doctor and I can cure you of your anal fistula. And the king's like, that sounds fake, but okay. Um, and she <laughs> says, well, if I can do it, what will you give me? And he's like, I don't know, what do you want? And she's like, I get to pick my husband out of anyone. And also there are like a bunch of clowns who talk, but it doesn't matter. So uh, <laughs> Helena cures the king and she rolls up and the king is all like happy and his anus is better. And he brings out a bunch of men, including Bertram, who's like super psyched to be in the court. Oh, and also Bortram wanted to go to a war, but the king wouldn't let him. So then Helena's like, plays all coy, like she's, who's she gonna pick? But we already know. So she picks Bertram. Um, Bertram's super pissed though. He's like, what the hell? Why did you pick me? I don't want to be married to you. And the king's like, fuck you. I'm telling you to marry this girl. Also, she cured me of my anal fistula. So you're gonna marry her. So they do. Um, and, but Bertram feels really weird about it. So he's like, you know what? I'm just gonna fucking go to war and I'm not gonna consummate my marriage and I'm never gonna come home. So Bertram runs away to war and Helena's like, all right, bitch, if that's how it is. And uh, next time we see Helena, she is like disguised herself, faked her own death, and followed him to the battlefield. And she hooks up with this real chill girl, Diana, and her mom. And Diana's like, oh, yeah, that guy Bertram, he's like totally hitting on me all the time. And Helena's like, hmm, interesting. Meanwhile, Bertram's like hanging out with his soldier friends and his friend Parolis, and they pretend they, they, <laughs> they, decide, yeah, they decide to trick him into so basically Bertram's friends are like Parolis is super shitty and Bertram's like nah 
he's my friend. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, he's super shitty. So we'll trick him to prove that he's shitty. So they trick him into going after his drum. And then they pretend to capture him, pretending that they're from the enemy side of the army. Um, and they start interrogating him. Oh, God, we've only got 30 seconds. They start interrogating him. And he's like, totally betrays all of his friends. So Helena talks to Diana and she's like, hey, Diana, why don't you convince Bertram that he's going to sleep with you and then we'll trade places and it'll be super dark so he won't notice it's me and we'll consummate our marriage. And Diana's like, cool. And so they do that. And Bertram and Helena have sex. And then Bertram goes back to the court and uh, and something happens. Prolis doesn't matter. And Helena turns up at the end like, surprise, bitch, it was me all along. We had sex. And Bertram was like, oh, amazing. I love you now. The end. Prolis, there's a ring involved. Oh, there's a ring. (laughs) Okay, that's time. That's time. (laughs) (laughs) How do I shut up the yes. timer? Shh, timer. Shh. Hush. Hush now. It's all over now, timer. I've never had such a thrill. <laughs> so that's the basic plot of All's Well That Ends Well. You'll notice we maybe um, glossed over some of the bits with Parolis and um, the, the clown. There, there are so many clowns. Except that really there's only one clown. Okay. But, but everybody's a clown. But like Parolis is clown adjacent. Le- Lefou, 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 There is, there is a character. It's set in uh, France, and um, Lefou is a character. Lavache is a character. That is so confusing on the page. Come on, Shakespeare. Pick a lane. Bill. Um, too many Lefou. Yeah, they're basically you've got your rom com, I guess, plot like with shitty Helena, Helena and Bertram, and then you're uh, going back and forth with just, like, a murder of clowns talking nonsense <laughs> at all times. A, a honking of clowns. <laughs> so, I think we want to start by talking about our main girl. I love, I Helena. love Helena. I love Helena. Helena is all of us. I basically, reading this play, was like, oh, Helena is me and is almost every woman I know as, like, a young professional in New York. She's like, when it comes to her career, a la being a doctor, she's like, no, I'm the best. Like, literally, I will stake my life on the fact that I know that I can cure you. I will go up to the king and I will tell him what it is and I will whatever. But when it comes to love, she's like, I am so unworthy. Why would anyone like me? Despite the fact that everyone else in the play, other than maybe Bertram and Parolis, are like, no, you're amazing. You're pretty and you're smart and you're lovely. But she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm actually going to push back on, uh, people do tell her that she's beautiful. They use the word beautiful a few times. But like, the subtext of the play seems to be like, Helen is maybe not the most traditionally mainstream. Oh, I'm totally mainstream. into that. I'm yeah, totally I, into that. But she's cool. Like, people like her. People like her. Well, be, yeah. she's brilliant and also very confident in her ability as a doctor. I wrote down um, when she, I think it's when she's talking to the king and convincing him to let her cure his anal fistula, which is what the king is dying of. That's just <laughs> what Shakespeare went with. Uh, and she says, I'm no imposter. She literally has that line. Yeah. Which I just think is... So great. And also when she's talking to the Countess and the Countess is saying, do you think you would be of any help? Your father was the greatest physician in the world, even though all of the king's doctors, you know, the best in France have tried and failed. And Helena is just like, oh, yeah, I could do it. Yeah, she's like, I know that I can do it. And so there is this dichotomy between her being confident in this one arena of her life and then having none. Can we just go into the suitor stuff? Is it time? Can I talk about it? 
Which suit or stuff? With Helena. She- so I think part of what sort of reveals her psyche for me mm-hmm. um, is when she's talking to all the suitors that she's not going to choose. In the scene where the king's like, you can pick whoever you want. And she, we know she's going to pick Bertram. I think it's very telling that the language that she uses in how she's sort of denying them is she doesn't say what I think a lot of our characters in the Shakespeare canon would say in that place of like, coming up with silly reasons that they're not good enough of you it could totally be a scene of her saying oh your nose is too long and i don't like your breath or whatever oh, but like, instead it's a scene of her saying you wouldn't want to marry me i'm too this for you and ah you seem too good for me but it's fascinating rhetorical logic because then when she does get to bertram and she picks him what she's inadvertently done is also insult him by being like, you're, everyone's too good for me, but I want to marry you. And what we know as people who she's had monologues to is that she views him as so much better. As She talks about him being the sun and a star. Yeah, I want to read this line. Yeah, she um, views him as being so, so far above her. But in that very public moment, she's both put herself down and therefore also put him down, which is fascinating to me. Well, it's also, I think, a big reason of why Bertram gets so upset that she chooses him, which I have a lot of different thoughts about that. But first, I wanted to read the line from Helena's first monologue. This is in the very first scene. Um, As soon as we see her alone and she's her childhood friend slash secret love of her life, Bertram, is leaving and she says, if Bertram be away, twere all, uh, I am undone, there is no living, none, if Bertram be away, twere all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it, he is so above me. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his sphere. Which I had a playlist in college <laughs> called Collateral Light that I made when I had a crush on this guy that I was like, he would never, like, it's just enough for me to hang out with him and, like, be around him and bask in his radiance because he would never look at me. Yeah, so I think it really is a play that is so resonant, especially um, as young women forever always, but also (laughs) for people forever always, but just just this idea of you can be confident and still have such self-esteem problems. Yeah, that she can be so smart and know she's smart and not be at all afraid of going before the king and saying, yeah, I'm the best doctor in the world. And she literally says, you can put me to death if I fail. Yeah. Yeah. And she and she has, like, a bunch of angsty monologues to us about, like, oh, I'm so nothing compared to Bertram. She has no angsty asides about being possibly put to death if she fails because she knows that she can cure an anal fistula. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that is super fascinating in terms of Helena en general. I also think that her medical ability is really... to. I think in a, in a big way this is a play about gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think m- Helena's medical ability is simultaneously positioned as coming from her father, because mm-hmm. her father was this great pos- physician, um, which weirdly... It makes it divorced from her femininity because it's not that, oh, she's a great healer because she's a girl and she's nurturing. No, yeah. It's that she has gone, she hasn't gone to med school, but she's like gone and read the medical texts and studied and learned on the job. But at the same time, at the, towards the end of that scene she has with the king, they start speaking entirely in rhyming couplets and it takes on the vibe of like a spell that she's casting. Yeah. So... She's 
she really does femininity all wrong from a traditional perspective. Like, she's a doctor in the way that men are doctors. She uses this witchcraft-adjacent rhyming magical in spell language of it. in her execution of it and um we get one of the fucking clowns i know there's one there's really one clown who's lavash he's lavash um yeah with french you're right it's lavash i don't know that like it's, the uh, cow? lumiere when lumiere <laughs> is is talking to the there's so many fucking scenes of lumiere and the countess where he's, wait can i give you my fun little fan theory sure. i ship them <laughs> no, the Countess and the King only. Oh, I'll take that too. But I just think it's funny. I feel like the Countess, they fucked once or twice. They're like... Eh. I guess. I mean, every single scene She's is just, just alone like... and he's just like... Ha, 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 him, him talking at her being like, I have a crush on this girl. Joke, joke, joke. And she's like, whatever, dude. This is the only fool I could get. <laughs> he's really... He's definitely a, a bargain bin fool. But there's one scene where he's talking to the Countess... And uh, Helen is coming, and he sings this little rude ditty about Helen of Troy um, that, you know, right before Helena arrives, um, I'm going back and forth between calling her Helen and Helena because she's called Helen a lot for um, uh, the iambic pentameter within the play. Yeah. But he sings this song about this Helen who's really beautiful and men came to her and she was the object of desire, whereas our Helena is not. not the object of desire. She is the one doing the desiring. She is not extremely beautiful. She does not have a lot of men banging down her door. She is this weird inversion of femininity. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that also this play does lay part of that at the feet of her lack of dowry. She's not wealthy. She sort of was brought up in the countess's court or around there. Um, but her father was a doctor. She's not royal and he's dead. So there's that. Um, but yeah, I know I agree with all that. I also think so to talk a little bit about the way that this play, I think explores gender in an interesting way. I think it's really telling in terms of how it sets our focus that right at the top of the play, really, as soon as everybody's most of the people have exited the scene we get this weird scene with parolis and helena oh yeah where they're bantering about virginity and it's sort of crude and and i think one of the things we get from it right away is that she's really smart and she also tells us a few times like parolis is shitty so we get that she's smart he's shitty and also that she's perceptive um but i do think it's interesting to put that up there because i think what it does is it tells us to be thinking about that and it tells us that this is a play that is concerned with sexual politics at its heart. I also think it's interesting that even though, look, Parolis sucks. I, He's this kind of Shakespearean archetype of the friend who makes sex jokes that we see, I would say, probably better done in um, Mercutio. And who's the mm. one from? Uh, okay. Mercutio Merc- doesn't make sex jokes. Yes, same. he does. Well, yeah. Oh, Mercutio. I'm sorry. I thought you said Malvolio. Absolutely not Malvolio. <laughs> I was like, politely, I disagree. No, Mercutio, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry. No, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the Bassanio's BFF in Merchant. Perlis is one of these archetypes, but he just kind of sucks more because he's not that witty or, or charming or funny. But I think he, he does make a good point with Helen in this weird virginity bantering scene where he talks about like, well, the only way to make more virgins is to lose one's virginity. And it's all about, uh, you can kind of read it as 
virginity isn't really that valuable. If we really valued virginity, the only way to get more virginity is by losing virginity. Exactly. It's a stupid and he literally thing to value. says virginity, the longer you hold on to it, the less it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they talk about the depreciating value of virginity and like, eh, you might as well get rid of yours. Yeah, and then Helen has a whole thing about like, well, how does one lose it in the way that they want to? Um, which all the language is about losing and defending virginity because that very much is the parlance of the time. It's kind of gross. But I think it's interesting that she's already kind of, how how can I get rid of this thing in a way that I will enjoy? How That I will enjoy and that also won't be embarrassing for me ultimately yeah. or, or make me worth less in my time. Um, but yeah, I think that that is an interesting way to start off our play. To take us on a, a related tangent still about gender but less about the battle of the sexes i would love to talk about female mentorship in this play (gasps) i love the relationship between helena and the countess and also we get the widow and diana yes and i love that all the ladies in this play are on the same side there's no you know weird backstabby no it's just like the women are like we get it and we're all just gonna hold each other up and i think that's beautiful and that the countess will side with helena over her own son any day yes of the, week. the countess is like that trash fire forget him as soon as he ditches helena also that first scene where the countess um has found out that helena has a big old crush on bertram someone overheard her talking to herself the steward, about who it. i want to say is named ronaldo which is the well, most interesting thing about him <laughs> yes um so the countess has found out that she has this crush and the countess is like oh helena you're like a daughter to me i think of myself as your mother and helena keeps saying no please no, don't no because then bertram's my brother and that's gross and finally after going back and forth several times the countess is like mother-in-law helena i want to be your mother-in-law i want to set you up with my son and helena's like Whereas Helena, and again, in in that way that I think is very adorable in a way. She's adorable. Well, she she thinks that, she can tell she's being trapped into saying that she likes Bertram. She's that smart. But her big monologue where she reveals it is she's like, please don't be upset with me for loving him. I would never go after him. I don't deserve him. All of these things. Because she's expecting to be chastised. And then the, the fact that the Countess comes back at her and she's like, nah, girl, it's fine. If you can figure out how to make it work, I'm here for it. The Countess is so on board. And then later on in the play, the Countess is like, Helena, you deserve better than Bertram, which is... Oh, boy. Also awesome, again, because he's her son. Yeah. But also true, because Bertram is the worst. (laughs) Bertram is... Ah, Bertram. My beautiful son slash husband, Bertram, is a really complicated character who can, I think, be played a number of different... I mean, they can all be played a number of different ways. Yeah. The play works best if we like Bertram at least a little bit. Well, exactly, because otherwise I think we're not invested in in what could be a journey. This is one of the things I think is really interesting about All's Well is there are so many, the way that you play these characters can utterly change the argument of oh, your production. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, let's let's go on a little tangent about, not tangent, this is my, my proposed next discussion point. Um, their relationship and the yeah. many ways. So you have some thoughts on the, the sort of, best way to play this. Well, dream, your ideal? Yeah. One? Yes. Suggestion? So Helena has been raised with Bertram 
I think if he does not give her a noogie within the first 40 seconds of the play, walk you've out. lost, you walk <laughs> out of the theater. It's doomed. Tear up your program. He, I think Just that kidding. for us to have any sympathy for Bertram, and you certainly can play the the play where Bertram is a big old villain and it's, and he's just and a it, jerk, and yeah, why is he not in love then, with Helena? And then the end is kind of upsetting, where they end up together. Spoiler alert. But I think that he has grown up with her, and he thinks of her as a little sister. And this is the first time he's getting out there in the world. He has just arrived at the court, and he's so excited to follow in his dead father's footsteps. And then the king's like, oh, sorry, Bertram, you're on the bench this time around, buddy. You're not going to war. And so he's mad at the king. And he's also trying to perform this certain level of masculinity for everybody around him. So I think, one, he's never thought of Helena in a sexual way. Two, I think he has to be really young and really mad at the king as this weird father surrogate. And that's where his initial anger and disgust towards the marriage is coming from. And also, I think... Bertram's arc, which has to be kind of a rushed arc because he doesn't get to say a lot towards the end, the very uh, after Helen reveals yeah, herself at the end. On the arc. We'll get to the end of the play. Yeah. But I think Bertram's arc is is one coming to see this woman who he didn't think of as sexual, who he thought of as this little sister, as this fully grown woman. I think it's also him coming to <laughs> see relationships as more than just like a a trophy wife because he clearly wants to go after the girls who everyone thinks are hot he wants to yeah and who have money and who have status and who have whatever more traditional beauty yeah i look you can cast helena in a lot of different ways i don't i think if she's a thin pretty ingenue then we're like why didn't he see her sexual in the first place I think she needs to be someone who has been traditionally left out of uh, romantic roles. Yeah. Um, which is a, a wide variety of per- of people, wide variety of body types. But this is such a great opportunity for someone who's not like... Usually the romantic lead. Who's not the usually the romantic lead. lead. It's Anne Hathaway at the beginning of The Princess Diaries. Uh, not, not even. It's, it's Tina Belcher. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's this smart girl who doesn't care about looking hot. Yeah. Like, she definitely has low self-esteem about herself and her romantic prospects. But the arc of the play, it she... She doesn't get a makeover ever. Nope. At the end of the play, I think she's still wearing glasses and she still has her frizzy hair up in a bun. And, she, you know, and she's still wearing her frumpy sweaters. It's just that, I mean, once she, Bertram slept with her, so now he's like, oh, you were that girl? Whoa, well, the amazing that night am- that I just had where I lost my virginity, that, <laughs> that was you, though? That changes things. So one, there's that, and it lets us see women who don't present as hyper-feminine as still sexual sexual and valid. Yeah, and two, she just, she wins him over through uh, her brains and her relentless pursuit of her goal. Trickery? And trickery. Yeah, for the record, not cool to pull a bed trick on anyone in real life. Don't do that. In in case this wasn't clear from our literal three-minute version of this play, for those of you, again, who are less familiar um she does trick him into having sex with her she does do that so i do think that one of the other problems of this play i think the most obvious problem with the play is that 
because Helena in so many ways is so likable. I think one of the key moments, honestly, of, of Helena's likability is that after she's finally in the in the, this very public sphere, she's like, I want to marry Bertram. And Bertram throws a fit and he goes, I don't want to marry her. She immediately is like, never mind, never mind, never oh, mind, yeah. never mind, never mind. And I think that that is the key moment in us liking her. Yeah. Because one, self-esteem issues. But two, that she doesn't try to force him to marry her. She says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, never mind. She's embarrassed. And it's actually that the king is like, how dare you question this? You're going to marry the person that I said you're going to marry. And that it's actually the king's pride that gets them married. Yeah, and, and Bertram is clearly angry with the king for leaving him out of the super fun war. And so Bertram is pushing back against the king's pronouncement that he has to marry this girl. And he it's so public and he's in front of all his dude bros. Yeah. And he doesn't want to... And it's putting him in this very emasculated position to be chosen by a woman to be married and because baby Bertram was brought up with dickheads like Parolis his immediate reaction is ew no gross and then I love the we the only scene in the whole play where Helena and Bertram are alone it's, it's the only scene right I think so uh, yeah I think so and and I, that's wait but before we get there sure. just the thought that I started because yes. I hate when people start thoughts and don't finish them yes. was that so this whole thing happens and then the bed trick happens yes but I was going to say I think the the obvious thing is to not like Bertram for all of these reasons but I do think that there's a very real line you have to walk with Helena yeah. because she she does some shitty things the idea of tricking someone into having sex with you is really never okay it's, it's super um, not okay don't yeah. do that um I think that's the main shitty thing that she does but but there that's one of the the sort of historical critiques of this play is that at times she's been called like a lascivious whatever and then also at times she's been called a doormat i don't personally agree with either of those and i do think you can build a play that supports all of her action in a way that we don't have to think that everything every character does in every play is perfect or moral but we want to at least be able to empathize with them and i think that um brings us to the title in a weird way they name drop the title so many times in this play. Yeah. Helena says a bunch of times, all's well that ends well, which she both uses as this beacon of hope for, hey, it's going to work out okay, even though I forced this guy into marrying me and he's super not into it. As long as I can trick him into having sex with me and get pregnant and force him to pretend to love me, it'll all be fine. But also it's this justification for all of her actions. Yeah, it's both optimism and and that. A couple of times that it's used also, like, one of them is, is when they, they're going to go do their, their plot, they've got the plot, and they go to go to the king and he's gone. And she's oh, like, yeah. well, all's well that ends well. Uh, though time seems so adverse and, and the means unfit, I don't know. It's just interesting. And then also in the epilogue, though, there's this weird epilogue that we haven't mentioned where the ki- the guy oh, yeah, playing the king epilogue. comes out and is like, I'm not the king anymore. But he also drops the all's well ended, basically, if you give us applause now. Um, I don't know, just sort of a nod to sometimes Shakespeare has those moments of being like, this was all a play. Oh, Be nice to it. Oh, my favorite one is in As You Like It when uh, Rosalind's yeah. like, I get to do the epilogue this time, boys. Yeah. Suck it. Yeah, so you can definitely, f- and I, I think another interesting flaw that Helena has, which also makes her a better character, yeah. that she has a lot of unlikable attributes. Yeah. In addition to being a kick-ass female doctor who's super insecure and also has a Tina Belcher-esque, you love, know, deep. Lo- deep love of men and their butts. 
I mean, really, she's an anal surgeon. Yeah. Um, but she, it's, it's that kind of that impulse that makes people ask out, like, the cute barista when it's like, oh, guy, don't do that. Not when they're at work. That she's scared to talk to Bertram and tell him that she likes him. Yeah. Even though he's her best friend and they grew up together. They're basically brother and sister, even though she doesn't want to think of it that way. But, uh, you know, they're, they're childhood friends. She's too scared to just talk to him and ask him out in a normal way because she's scared of getting rejected. And we do know that they really are friends. She does say in one of those op- first monologues, basically, like, it's been great having him here and seeing him every day and hanging out with him all the time. So I do like that the play gives us that... Basically that she's not just, like, a totally crazy person. Like, she has a relationship with him and they have a a standing there. Um, Also, in terms of the the play title, I think that I was trying to think of why the Parolis subplot is there. Um, And I I think that it's kind of an interesting other way to explore that idea. Because what they introduce at the top of the play is that Helena and... Lefew know that Parolis is a dickhead mm-hmm. and that he's kind of fooling a lot of people, mostly Bertram. Um, and they have a, a moment of, of it shall come to pass that every braggart shall be found an ass where it's like even, you can run, but you can't hide. And again, even if you're getting away with it now, you're going to get your just desserts in the end. So I think that's the other way that the play title sort of functions throughout the play is the idea of like everyone will get what they deserve and like justice is what is well and all all will be well because everything will end the way it's supposed to. Yeah, although I don't order. know that I think the play ends that oh, way. Oh, I don't think necessarily <laughs> because either. I think the, the trouble with Helena's character arc is she doesn't really learn her lesson. Because I, I do... No, I, yeah. I do think that there there is a lesson to be learned in that you know, there's a reason you shouldn't do grand romantic gestures before the first date. She puts Bertram in this really awful position where she's trying to force him into marriage in front of the court of France and all his (laughs) friends and also the king. And Bertram's like, no, which obviously Bertram, I mean, Harold Bloom doesn't like him. I'm a little more forgiving towards Bertram. Harold Bloom also is a parolist apologist, which no thanks. Um, (laughs) We'll get there. But we'll get there. But Bertram, if he was a female character, I think it would be a lot easier to be like, how dare you force this young woman into marriage when she just wants to go off and see the world because we've been programmed to love that Disney princess renegade type. And that's not to apologize for Bertram being a shitty frat boy, which he is. But it, it, you know, fair fair enough. He didn't want to marry her. And she's like, surprise, we're married. And he's like, no thanks. And Helena, to her credit, is like, oh, I made a mistake, I made a mistake, I made a mistake. It's very Galinda and Wicked, am I right? When does... She throws him a surprise engagement oh. party. Fiero. Let's have a celebration. Da, 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 da. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much like Galinda and Wicked, um, who, who I think learns more of her lesson than no, Helena does. a greater does. arc there. She Sorry, Shakespeare. Sorry, Shakespeare. She really, she keeps, well, then I, I do think if you're going, you, you kind of have to do a lot of work as a director and actress to give Helen an arc where she learns something mean, meaningful and learns changes. Learns anything. And I think that an easy one, again, you've got your, your pick. She's got so many lessons to learn. But I think it's self-worth is the thing that yeah. she learns. And I think that that 
is her arc and hopefully in all's well that ends well too the sequel <laughs> you know the squeakquel if you will like then maybe she their marriage has to teach her you know to be less conniving um but I I think that the play as written that her, that's her journey is realizing that she is worth this marriage which brings us to that scene that we've both like been like eh, 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 a couple of times um we've been scene, edging. We've been edging towards this scene. Oh, God. Gross. Ew. I hate that. Um, but here it is. We're not teasing you anymore. So the scene where, uh, like you said, I think it's their only scene alone. Yeah. Um, which I love that Shakespeare gives us because so often we don't get this scene really in any media. The scene right after the big thing has happened where mm-hmm. nothing really happens, but we get to watch people react to things. And in this case, to be fair, there is information that happens because Bertram tells Helena that he's leaving. But I think it is such a beautiful scene because basically both of them have this moment of what are we going to do now? And Helena clearly is like, I'm sorry, I'm going to do whatever I can to make it up to you, but please kiss me. And he's uh. like, sorry, got to go. But I I think in my dream version of this scene, like at least when I read it for the first time, I was like, there's such a beautiful way to block this, especially if you're going with the like, they are childhood friends and maybe he's never seen her that way, but let's face it, he's got to look at her that way now for a second and be like, is this a thing? But where you slow that scene down and you let it take its its time, not in an annoying, you know, masturbatory way. But I do <laughs> think that there are moments where he's, they're both thinking through what to do and that maybe like they almost kiss or they almost touch each other and he just can't do it. Well, also Bertram is young. I mean, they're all, most of Shakespeare's lovers are like cool teens. Yeah. But he, I don't know that he's ever been alone with a girl who he thought of in a sexual way before this scene because we don't get Bertram's monologue where we get his feelings. We only see him talking to his bros and to his surrogate dad king being like, I hate you, dad. And then like yelling at his bros like, whatever, I'm not going to have sex with her. Gross. And then when he's alone with Helen, he he also goes from this very absolute language when he's talking to the bros mm-hmm. about like, I'm never going to be in love and I hate this and this is the worst. Whereas when he's with her, he's actually very careful of her feelings in a way. And again, you can totally play it as him being brusque, but the way it read to me is that brusque? he brusque. Yep, that's the word. Whatever. <laughs> I'm talking fast. I'm excited. Um, but that he's he's really trying to find the way to get out of this situation that he's not comfortable in without hurting his best friend. He says, "Prepared, I was not for such a business. Therefore, am I found so much unsettled to her." Which is the nicest way of saying, "Hey, I really wish you had talked to me before that surprise proposal when we weren't even dating." Yeah, and he's and he's also saying, "I'm." I'm not mad at you. Just surprise processing a lot. Oh, yeah, he does not. He does not ever yell at her. He yells about her and he writes nasty things about her. And I don't think he should be excused for any of that. But when he's face to face with Helena, he apologizes and Helena responds in the most extra way ever, where she just starts going on about I'm not worthy. I'm your most obedient. She says she basically all of the things that she's written in her diary that she's like never said out loud. It's all just like this weird garbled version of that. Yeah. She says, sir, I can nothing say, but then I am your most obedient servant. And he says, come, come, no more of that. Like, well, exactly. I think it's both of them trying. She's like, I can one, I'm going to make it up to you, but also like, I'm here, your wife. And he's like, I just can't. We can't. Let's just be real for a second. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, I, oh, sorry, computer's making fun noises. I think in addition to being a play that engages a lot with gender Your roles. viruses are protected. My viruses are all protected. It's about, or, or, you know, it can be read as being about growing up and the sort of scripts we have for romance, where Helena, do, neither of them know anything about romance, and Helena thinks that she can win this guy over by being like, I am a worm beneath your feet. I worship you. And he's just like, stop, you're freaking me out. I don't I don't want to hear you grovel. He's not interested in that. Which is also why I think, again, in the version of the play, if you want us to like them and root for them, that at the end, part of whatever thing that makes it okay is the fact that she stepped up and was like, no, I'm here and I'm I'm worth this and this is going to happen now. Oh, yeah. Also, get them when they think they're going to be put to death. Am I right? We'll get to that in a second. Um, Shoot. What oh, was wait, the but thing no, I was going to say? But then yeah? she asks for a kiss and he yeah. turns her down. So sad. It's just, if anyone has ever, like gotten rejected in that way where you like go in for the kiss and, and they're they, not like, in. turn their it's, head it's so bad and it's also Humiliating. and i think also if we have any sympathy for bertram which again i think at best he's a complicated character yeah at worst he's a monster but at best i don't think he's ever kissed any girl and I think he has to be a little bit scared and freaked out. And she's she's really trying to pressure him into having sex with her. And he's not interested. And for all that he is also like, but she's a commoner. And like, I want to go to war. Like, yeah, he's, he's, That's rough. he's not ready. He's yeah. not ready. And I don't think she is either at this point in the play. She's just talked herself into such a poetic frenzy. Yeah. Also, to bring up the war stuff, because I think there's um <laughs> there's this whole war subplot, and, like, for my money, not the most interesting part of the play. Boring. Sorry, Harold Bloom at all. Harold but Bloom loves Parolis, and I don't understand why. <laughs> it's all right. I just, maybe sexism? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I do think one of the brilliant things, thanks, Shakespeare, about making the subplot war is that when the letter comes where Bertram's like, hey, I'm going off to war and I'm literally never coming back, Helena's reaction is, oh my god, he's in danger because of me. Mm -hmm. So she goes into hiding as a whatever, a nun. Fix her death. Um, But it's not just because she's extra. It's because she's selfless in a way. She's like, I'm I'm just going to go disappear because I would rather literally disappear and have no life than risk the fact that this person who I love is in harm's way. Um, Mm. So I think that does a really beautiful job of motivating her disguising herself, which doesn't always happen in Shakespeare. (laughs) Sometimes they're just like, and I'll be disguised, and then they'll see. Um, But we really see exactly why she's doing it. And we, I think it makes her even more sympathetic that she made a mistake, but she is a person who tries to own up to some of her mistakes. Well, although she does she does go the very extra mile of faking her own death, which I love. We we find out this information through two soldiers are like gossiping about it and one of them's like, "Oh yeah, she she like went on this religious pilgrimage cuz she was so upset that Bertram didn't want her and then she, you know, took ill and she was writing all these letters that have confirmed it and then she died. That's not in the letters from her because she was dead. But wait, another wait, another person wrote the letter. The plot? Like isn't it first that she's just like tell them I've gone to be a nun? Oh yeah, at first yeah. at first she it just goes away, but then she decides that she's going to fake her own death as 
well. Yeah, once she's she's got this whole bed trick to do, because that way there's no way they can suspect her, I guess. And it, also, then they'll be, it does ring of then they'll be sorry, because I will say what I was going to say about the, the beauty thing, also to support the idea that maybe she's not the world's greatest beauty, is that the main point where they're talking about like how perfect she is, is in the scene in Act 5 when they all think she's dead. Mm-hmm. And that's very much how you talk about a dead person, yeah. is you're like, all of the best <laughs> things about them and none of the worst <laughs> things about them. Like, he is everything. Also, when she's in disguise um, and she they go to Italy and she's talking to Diana, who's this girl that Bertram has a crush on in Italy, and Diana's mom. The widow's her mom, right? The widow's her mom. Okay, sorry. She's just Wait, also, widow. can I just read this one fantastic line about Diana, Diana talking about her mom, the widow? Of course. She's talking about Bertram. She's just had this whole scene with Bertram where she's like, go home to your wife, go home to your wife, go home to your wife. And he's like, but I love you. And she's like, fine, then here, take my ring and meet me at midnight and we'll we'll do it. Um, because I, I do think it's nice though that she gives him a moment to like be like, ah, I was shitty, I repent. Before mm-hmm. she's like, okay, we'll go through with this trick. Um, but then she has this little monologue and in it. She says, my mother told me just how he would woo as if she sat in his heart. <laughs> she says, all men have the like oaths. <laughs> and it's just like that classic line where she's like, my mama warned me about you. My mother always told me that most men were dickheads. Yes. Yeah, and all uh, Diane is a really underrated Shakespearean character. She's fantastic. Because as soon when um, Helena first rolls up in disguise and and she's like, oh Bertram, I've heard of him. Didn't he have some wife? And like pretending not to be. Helena, and they're like, yeah, it sucks, he was super mean to her, his wife, and Helena's all like... She literally says he would be better looking if he was better to his wife. Yeah, Diana says that. She's like, that's not hot to be mean to your wife. Um, But Helena is like, well, his wife was unworthy and whatever and plain and nonsense. And Diana comes back with, no, it sucks for her that she was married to such a mean dude. Like, Diana is full on on team sisters before misters. Yes. Immediately, without having met Helena. Also, I love in that scene that they're like, oh, apparently his wife is, like, kind of, you know, not so beautiful. And Helena's and like... it's kind of the worst. And it's kind of the worst. Way. And Helena's like, who'd you hear that from? They're like, this asshole named Parolis. And Helena's like, oh, yeah. Fair. Yeah, that tracks. That tracks. He doesn't like me. He doesn't like but me. he doesn't like anyone. And I don't like him. So it's fine. <laughs> no one likes Parolis except for Harold Bloom. I also like that he's described as a follower of Bertram. Like, it's unclear what exactly his whole deal is. It's sh- in it's Shakespeare, just like his friend. we have so many of these weird <laughs> relationships where it's like a nobleman and his friend, friend slash employee. Maybe servant. Like, uh, but but per- I don't think Perlis is his servant. I don't either. But he does describe himself as, or Lafue describes him as Bertram's man. I How, think another yeah. um, another thing about the way that Bertram is characterized is that he has to be so uncomfortably hot. <laughs> well, he doesn't have to be, but I think the play works very well if Helena is someone who society tells us is, you know dowdy or dumpy or she's or she's just wearing glasses what if she's even? just wearing glasses <laughs> or she's got braces or you know she's considerably taller or fatter than bertram or, or just too skinny or, or whatever too, yeah just something just, that cosmo would be like nah yeah something that you don't see in the magazines and bertram is a chris evans chris pratt michael b jordan just like so hot that he's maybe never Dealt with the consequence. (laughs) Um, And he, you know, he's clearly hot and inexperienced 
because he's really excited to get out there in the world, um, and he keeps going back and forth on how he feels about love and romance like when he runs away to join the army because he's so excited about like being masculine and, and proving himself and getting out there and being a hero and also it's just an excuse to get out and to also out. he was a little bit goaded by Parolis to <sighs> do that yes. he's like oh I guess it's a no god Parolis is like do it anyway Ugh, come to Parolis has the most condescending line in the western canon when he says to Bertram what's the matter sweetheart after Bertram's been forcibly married against his will and I hate it uh, but Bertram Bertram goes to war and he has an amazing line being like, I'm paraphrasing, but saying, Mars, now I am a lover of thy drum and a hater of love. And he's just, he's, you know, a, a man going his own way or whatever stupid ass male rights initiative is is out there online. He's like, he's like going to be a guy who just does it for himself. And then he gets to Italy and falls in love with Diana and doesn't know how to handle it and doesn't know how to woo and yeah I, th- also I think interesting that her name is Diana mm-hmm. virgin anyway continue yeah it, we've got Diana the goddess of chastity and that Helen chasing Helena the goddess well not the goddess but the the epic mythic figure who symbolizes beauty yeah. and um sort of femininity just I I just think that Bertram has to be extremely extremely good looking and kind of naive yeah and i think that 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 naivete Mm -hmm. is part of what ends up managing to justify his mercurial decision making yeah i also think there are sort of two for me key moments in the show in terms of his uh, a peek into how he feels about things yeah because he doesn't get a ton of like big beautiful soliloquies but he does get a couple of key moments one is he has this like sort of short paragraph where he's like right after he gets the news that that helena is supposedly dead where he's like helena's dead and i got this letter and like everything's happening and then he goes right into the scene where they finally uh parolis sort of betrays everybody and gives everybody up and then they're like haha it was us all along and i will say i think that his lines in that scene are sort of the most he uses words like ah oh, he's traitor and he's two-faced and all these things and I think that there's room for that to all just be like, ha, 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 we're having fun, we're bros. But I also think there's room for, like, he's genuinely upset. His best friend is betraying him in a very high stakes, however simulated, Parolis doesn't know that, mm-hmm. situation. And his best friend is dead and everybody's mad at him. And I think he's, like, processing a lot of things at once yeah. in that scene in a way that can be very interesting. And I also think that in the in the scene, this is a line that I, I had to do a little research on to make sure it wasn't just me who was confused about it and surprised. Other scholars also agree that this line is ambiguous. I like that you identified yourself as a scholar in that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Oops. Anyway, there are scholars who agree with me that it's ambiguous. Uh, so the, the king says to Bertram, you remember the daughter of this lord, meaning Lefeu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bertram says, admiringly, my liege, At first I stuck my choice upon her, ere my heart durst make too bold a herald of my tongue, where the impression of mine eye in fixing, contempt his scornful perspective did lend me, which warped the line of every other favor, scorned a fair color, or expressed it stolen, extended or contracted all proportions to a most hideous object. Thence it came that she whom all men praised, and whom myself since have lost, have loved, was in mine eye the dust that did offend it." So it's interesting because probably most likely what he's saying is, 
yes, I had a crush on LaFue's daughter, and that's part of why I've been a dick this whole time, <laughs> is because I had a crush on her, and so I didn't want to marry Helena, even though you're right, she's super great. And even that interpretation is up to interpretation, because does he actually have a crush on her, or is he just trying to seem like less of a dick in front of the king? Mm-hmm. Um, but the other way you can sort of take it, since he doesn't use any proper nouns, he only uses pronouns, is that the bulk of that speech could be talking about Helena, yeah. and then he could be saying, like, yes, I admire Lafue's daughter. Honestly, I, I was sort of distracted by all of these things, but I have loved Helena, and that was confusing to me. Basically, it's 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 him admitting a more complicated relationship to his own love, mm-hmm. um, and that the idea of that the dust in his eye was the thing that he loved, so he it was like mm. too close to see. Mm. Um, so she it, was there the whole time, yeah, and he never saw her. I do think again, just like construction of grammar wise, it's not the strongest argument necessarily, mm-hmm. but I think construction of story-wise, it's a very, it's nice to have it as an option, and it, it is sort of a beautiful moment of being like, oh, he misses her, and he feels like he fucked up, yeah. and it then makes it that when she comes and back to life, essentially, and that she also is the person that he spent this amazing sexual experience mm-hmm. with, that, like, all of those things compound into just being like, oh, I can... I can happily marry this woman or be wed to this woman. Um, which kind of brings us to the end of the play. Yeah, which is so... Other than the weird king epilogue. We're talking about the end of Act 5. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll get into the king later. We're coming for you, king. We're coming for you. We have a lot of thoughts on you. We have a lot of thoughts. But you and your anal fistula. Oh, I just want to say anal fistula anal as fistula. many times as possible. I, oh, man. it's What an upsetting disease. <laughs> it's a thing that happens. Anyways, but Bertram the, the, is so dragged by his friends and family <laughs> and sovereign monarch at the end of this play. It's really beautiful. I think every single rom-com, <coughs> excuse me, every single rom-com should end with the asshole guy getting dragged for everything he's done wrong the whole play because they bring Diana out. Lafue is like, I don't think I want you to marry my daughter now. The king's like, if you think wives are such monsters, why do you keep marrying all these women? Diana yells at him. It's just Bertram is forced to grow up and face the consequences of his actions. And the king is also becomes convinced for a second because he the ring that he has from Diana is actually the ring that mm-hmm. the king gave Helena. Um, so the, the king is like, if you have this ring, there's no reason Helena would give away this ring except for maybe in bed. Also, I like that that's just a thing I guess people did in bed or just in do, Shakespeare's head. Do you not give rings to everyone you sleep with? <laughs> oh, dear. Just uh, have a box next to my bed of condoms and rings. I don't. Anyway, I don't. Don't um, give What kind away. of ring? Anyway, so he's there. <laughs> but he's like, there's no reason she would have given you this ring. And plus, she was never near you. She was supposedly not where you were geographically. So why do you have this ring? It must have been nefarious. And plus, Murder! Helena, yeah. He's like, Helena's my bestie. She cured my ass. So, (laughs) literally. So, I'm going to throw you in jail until I get to the bottom of this. So, literally, the moment Helena comes out, he's, like, maybe about to be put to death as well. Which is a good space to be in if you want to be like, I tricked you, but you're not going to die now. If you want to trick someone into marrying (laughs) you. 
Which kind of brings us to that very end of the play, again, disregarding that weird little King epilogue, um, is that it ends really fast. It's just over. There's there's literally one page with Helena on stage, so they don't do the whole, like, this was a comedy, let's dismantle everything that you've already watched, which I kind of appreciate on a pacing level. Mm -hmm. But it does, again, sort of open up the end of the play to interpretation in terms of how okay you want everybody to feel at the end because we get not a lot of words from anybody yeah bertram kind of stammers his way through and promises to love her forever after you know there's been immense peer pressure and uh pressure from the king and helen has showed up being like surprise bitch i'm not dead and i'm pregnant with your kid in front of you know diana who he protested that he loved and screwed over. And he also maybe has just said that he loved this other lady, but even if that's not the case, Bertram's actual line is, if she, my liege, can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly ever, ever dearly. So again, it's that stammering we talked about earlier, but it's it's apparently some actors really stress the if, if you want Bertram to be an asshole, Mm. then he's like, well, if she can explain this, I guess I'll love her. But if you don't want him to be an asshole, he's like, whoa, if this happened then i'll love her forever which i think is actually for all the problems of this problem play it's actually kind of nice if you give bertram the the moment to be like hot damn that was you i slept with if that was you then i am in love with you that that was a you know mind-blowing night and even helena has Her reaction a few scenes earlier to their night together is that clearly they had a good time. She has some line about, like, I'm surprised he could have so much fun with something he says he loathes so much because he he claims he doesn't want to be married to her. Yeah, and even the the, the fact that she comes out and she he sort of wrote in his letter to her that until he can get the ring from her finger and and or until she can get the ring from his finger and bear his child, he, he won't come back. And she's like if it was a test, I passed. And you're like, was that a test? Like, it was sarcasm. But Helena, okay. <laughs> Helena is so extra that she was like, oh, I will take this literally. Yeah, but it does kind of give us, which I don't think was her initial intention. I think it's just how she's decided to present it. Anyway, so it gives us that moment at the end where we can sort of have a moment like the end of The Graduate where they're just like, what do we do now? Or it can be a really nice moment of them being together or it can be a huge problem that will get resolved off stage. Did all end well? Did all end well. Depends on the director you have, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And now, Goodreads No one would read this and think it's anything special if someone other than Shakespeare had written it. I hated this even more than Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) At least the writing in Romeo and Juliet had substance. (laughs) I love Shakespeare, but this one was just not my favorite. And then there's a a gif of John Ralphio from Parks and Rec going, The worst! (laughs) Oh, this one's nice and short and sweet. This play was really boring. (laughs) (laughs) I periodically pick up my Shakespeare anthology to soak in the timeless wisdom, and rarely am I disappointed. But there is a first time for everything. Sorry, Bill. I still love you, but this is unacceptable work. (laughs) 
take it back and rewrite it. Put some three-dimensional characters in it. Kill somebody or torture their conscience until they snap and make a bloody mess. Do something. Don't just sit there, Bill. Don't just sit there. I'll give you a C-. minus For extra credit, you can write an apology letter for wasting my time or fix me a Hot Pocket. Spoiler alert! How does this end well if she is married to a lowlife? All's Well is a comedy, only in that it is not tragic, and that is the tragedy of this comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yuck. It's not true. Just because everything turns out okay in the end doesn't justify the rest. Why would anyone like this? What do you get when you combine a cheesy movie plot, some rather uninteresting characters, and the greatest writer of all time? You get two stars. <laughs> it's a two-star review. <laughs> Amazing. This has been Goodreads Reviews. And now is the part of the podcast where one of us reads a monologue in a series of silly voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle, what will you be reading for us today? Uh, oh, you know, one of the only well-known speeches from this play <laughs> done by almost every young girl looking for a funny monologue from Shakespeare by a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, Helena's Then I Confess Here on My Knee, where she tells the Countess that she indeed is in love with Bertram. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. Russian. Oh, you know I'm bad at that one. <laughs> you gotta um, do it, you gotta do then it. Then I confess here on my knee before I have done you. But before Mad scientist. Before you are next unto high heaven. I, oh my beaker, it's bubbling over. Snow White. I love your son. Oh, no. My friends were poor but honest. So's my, I've been dreaming of my love. Scooby-Doo. That's a goofy. Just any cartoon dog. Not offended. All right. Hurt him not. That's just bad. Give me a different one. Pepe Le Pew. And that he has loved of me, I follow him not by any token of presumptuous suit, nor would I have him till I do deserve him. 1940s radio announcer. Ah, no, uh, no, never, no, I have to, I know I love in vain, trap against hope, yet in the sketches and indeedable says I still pour in the Lord as I love, like not to lose still. Less Indian, like religious in my eyes. Cockney. No, or the sun. Look, the pool needs worship, but you know, it's no more. My dearest madam, gone. Let not you wait and counter with my love for loving where you do. But if yourself, who's aged on earth, like a gangster. virtuous youth. Uh, if you see a guy, they're both from the 40s. They're just like men in the 40s. Keep going, keep going. Uh, uh, did so true, a flame of liking. Uh, wish Chase Lee and love dearly. Uh, where's my New York accent? That you were, uh, that you were, Diane was both herself and love. <laughs> oh, then give pity to her. Another sake. Snow White? So oh, I thought that was for me. Oh, we both went in Snow White Jane. We're friends. Oh, then he gave pity to her who stayed as such that she cannot choose but lend and give where she is sure to lose. Femme fatale. seeks not to find where her search implies, but riddle-like lives sweetly where she dies. And then I pulled a gun out for Femme Fatale. Oh, and you kill the Countess. Yeah. Twist. <laughs> you know that one guy from the Goodreads would like it better. <laughs> she did, she's just a murderer. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast on All's Well That Ends Well, yeah. everyone's favorite Shakespeare I really play. would like to just personally apologize to any Scooby-Doo fans out there. I promise I have seen Scooby-Doo. In all of the 40s. <laughs> just the entirety of the 40s. I'm writing a letter. 
I'll so, send it. So, um, please, I'm Charlotte Aline. And I'm Danielle Cohn. Also, please. 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 <laughs> please. No, I was going to say, please, um, you know, reach out to us. Leave us a nice review. Don't reach out to us if you didn't like it. Just be quiet. Bury yeah, it. Just... Bury it in your backyard and never speak of it again. But if you did like it, or even if you think that someone in your life might Would be like a, a big nerd for Shakespeare. Um, yeah. Please. I was going to say, I'm a nerd for us, but that's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're not into that. Please share and subscribe and do all of the internet things yeah. to the podcast. Right on all the walls. Get it out there in the world. Do all the, the hashtags and the tweets. Next week, we're going to be talking with our dear friend and professional Shakespearean director, Emily Lyon. Uh, yes, and it's actually a special treat because she is currently working on uh, directing a production of All's Well That Unns Well. And especially since we've been talking a lot about how the director affects that play, we're excited to get her perspective. And if you want to check out that show, it is running November 5th to D... De- oh, no, 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 no. It's, it is running... December 6th through the 15th at the Gene Frankel Theater in Soho. So you can check that out, Hedgepig. Thanks, guys. Bye! I don't You've know, seen Snow White? I've seen Snow White, but like I don't it's not one that I watched a lot as a child and I don't know her that well. I'm wishing I'm wishing oh, dang it. for the That's one I love to find me to find <laughs> me.